Hi, I'm Joseph Feraldi. I want to thank you for joining us here at Bayside Chapel Online. Our prayer is that today's service will be a blessing to you, that it will encourage you in your journey with Jesus Christ, and it will help you to see all that God has in store for you. We would love to hear from you on how God is using this ministry to bless you, and we'd love the opportunity to pray for you. Just send us an email at amen at baysidechapel.org. Remember that you can stay in touch with us at any time. Just visit the App Store and search for our app at Bayside Chapel of NJ. Also, if God is using this ministry to bless you, we'd like to give you the opportunity to partner with us financially. Simply go online to BaysideChapel.org or use the Bayside Chapel app and choose whatever option works best for you. Enjoy today's message. You know, most great people are remembered for the extraordinary lives that they lived. Relatively fewer people are known for the extraordinary deaths they died. There are exceptions, of course. There are some missionaries, some martyrs, some war heroes who are known for how valiantly and bravely they gave their lives for a cause they believed in or to save the life of a comrade. What really distinguishes Jesus, part of what makes him the most significant figure in all of history, is not only the way he lived his extraordinary life, but also the extraordinary way he died. And apart from that extraordinary death, you and I would be utterly lost and without hope, forever separated from God and life as he means for us to live it. His death is the fulcrum of all of human history, the the thing on which all of history turns. And my goal for us today is that we will better understand Jesus' death, more thoroughly appreciate it, and come to utterly depend upon it. We've come a long way in our walk with Jesus through the Gospel of Mark, going all the way back to the beginning of this year. We have watched as Jesus has taught the most marvelous teaching the world has ever heard. We have uh, looked on as he has done miracles that nobody else has ever performed. We have seen how Jesus confronted the corruption of the religious establishment of his day. We've sympathized with Jesus' followers as they deserted him and denied him. And then we've watched the last couple of weeks as Jesus has endured two sham trials, the first before Jewish religious authorities at which he was charged with blasphemy even though he actually was the Son of God. And then the Roman trial at which he was charged with insurrection though he had never raised an army and, and led an insurrection against anyone. And yet he was condemned to death at both of those trials. And today, uh, in the text before us, we read of the crucifixion, the death, and the burial of Jesus as we quickly move to the end of Mark's gospel. Now, in one respect, uh, crucifixion was a common enough way to die in the Roman world. They crucified thousands of people. People were crucified all the time. It was a rather, rather common sight to see somebody be crucified for their sins, for their crimes. But the way Mark tells the story here draws attention to the fact that this particular crucifixion was unlike any other that had ever occurred or ever would occur again. In dying as in living, everything about Jesus pointed to his unique identity and mission. Even the way he died testified about him. And so, to put it in, in short, 
Jesus' death was extraordinary. Jesus' death was extraordinary. And in the passage before us, Mark chapter 15, verses 21 through 47, Mark is going to show us several ways that that's true, several ways Jesus' death was so extraordinary. Here's the first way Jesus' death was extraordinary. He faced death in an extraordinary way. He faced death in an extraordinary way. The way Jesus experienced crucifixion, the way he experienced death was unusual, highly unusual. Mark's readers were well acquainted with the terrible routine that was crucifixion. And Mark's telling of the story is meant to draw attention to the way Jesus' crucifixion was unlike any other. Beginning with uh, verse 21, where it says, And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. Now, this is unusual in itself because it was normal for a victim of crucifixion to carry their own cross to the place of execution. So for somebody else to carry that cross is, is extraordinary, it's highly unusual. Uh, the, the cross beam that's being referred to here is probably a, a piece of lumber, only about 30 or 40 pounds, which you could easily put upon your shoulders and, and carry it yourself. Uh, the fact that Jesus had to have somebody carry it for him bears witness to the extreme weakened condition he is already in because of all the beatings he's received, because of the way that, that the, the temple guards beat him. And then he was, he was mocked by the Roman soldiers as they put a purple robe on him and a crown of thorns on his head and beat him with a reed on top of his head, uh, crying out, Hail, King of the Jews! And then they took that robe off of him and they flogged him severely and he's apparently in such a weakened condition that he can't even carry his own cross. And so Simon of Cyrene is pressed into that duty. Then it says in verse 23, they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. This is extraordinary too because everybody took the wine. It was a rough wine mixed with myrrh so that it had some anesthetic properties. It was intended to kind of dull your senses so that you wouldn't feel quite so much the horror of what was to come. Everybody took the wine, but not Jesus. Maybe because Jesus had promised his disciples at the Last Supper that he would not drink wine again until he drank it anew with them in his kingdom but also likely because Jesus doesn't want to be dulled. He doesn't want to have his senses dulled. He wants to remain in total control of his faculties because he has work to do even as he goes to the cross. This is extraordinary. And then it says in verse 24, and they crucified him. And they crucified him. Just four words. An incredibly restrained way of saying they subjected him to the most horrendously torturous death one can possibly imagine, and they crucified him. Here's what's packed into those four words. A medical doctor by the name of Truman Davis describes crucifixion this way. He says, the cross is placed on the ground and the exhausted man is quickly thrown backwards with his shoulders against the wood. The legionnaire feels for the depression at the front of the wrist. He drives a heavy square wrought iron nail through the wrist and deep into the wood. Quickly he moves to the other side and repeats the action, being careful not to pull the arms too tightly, but to allow some flex and movement. The cross is then lifted into place. The left foot is pressed backward against the right foot with both 
feet extended, toes down. A nail is driven through the arch of each, leaving the knees flexed. The victim is now crucified. As he slowly sags down with more weight on the nails in his wrist, excruciating fiery pain shoots along the fingers and up the arms to explode in the brain. The nails on the wrist are putting pressure on the median nerves. As he pushes himself upward to avoid this stretching torment, he places the full weight on the nail through his feet. Again, he feels the searing agony of the nail tearing through the nerves between the bones of his feet. As the arms fatigue, cramps sweep through the muscles, knotting them in deep, relentless, throbbing pain. These, with these cramps comes the inability to push himself upward to breathe. Air can be drawn into the lungs, but not exhaled. He fights to raise himself in order to get even one small breath. Finally, carbon dioxide builds up in the lungs and in the bloodstream, and the cramps partially subside. Spasmodically, he's able to push himself up to exhale and bring in life-giving oxygen. Hours of this limitless pain, cycles of twisting, joint-rending cramps, intermittent partial asphyxiation, searing pain as tissue is torn from his lacerated back as he moves up and down against the rough timber then another agony begins. A deep, crushing pain deep in the chest as the pericardium slowly fills with serum and begins to compress the heart. It is now almost over. The loss of tissue fluids has reached a critical level. The compressed heart is struggling to pump heavy, thick, sluggish blood into the tissues. The tortured lungs are making a, making a frantic effort to gasp in small gulps of air. He can feel the chill of death creeping through his tissues Finally, he can allow his body to die. All this Mark records with four words, and they crucified him. Now, that physical agony wasn't unique to Jesus. What is unique to Jesus, what's extraordinary about the way he was crucified was not only his weakened condition, his, his refusal to drink the narcotic wine, but then the, the intense way he's tormented by passersby. Look at verse 29 where it says, And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests and the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see him and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. When do you think the chief priest ever went to a crucifixion? Probably never, but he shows up for this one. His hatred for Jesus is that great, his desire to see Jesus die is that strong that the chief priest himself and, and the scribes of Israel, members of the ruling council who were there to hear the false accusations about Jesus tearing down the temple and rebuilding it in three days, they're there to mock him, to scorn him, to deride him, to taunt him. Save yourself, they say. Of course he could, but of course he couldn't. Of course he, he could cast out a legion of demons from a man. He could raise a person from the dead. He could heal the sick. He could feed 5,000 people in the wilderness. He could calm storms on the Sea of Galilee. Mark has shown us in Jesus all this power. And now he shows Jesus in seeming weakness. And though he's derided by almost everyone who gathers at the foot of the cross that day, Mark means for us to see that Jesus is held there by choice, not by nails, but by love. 
Jesus' enemies thought him powerless. When the real power was his, he could have called 10,000 angels to come and rescue him from the cross, but he chose not to. They said he could prove his messianic power by getting himself down from there, but in reality, he is demonstrating his messianic love by staying there. There's a sense in which they were right to say he could not save himself. He couldn't save himself and be obedient to the Father's will. He couldn't save himself and save us too. He chose to remain and endure the derision and the pain because it was what the Father wanted and what we most needed. Extraordinary, don't you think? I mean, who stays on a cross when he doesn't have to? And then comes this cry of forsakenness in verse 34. It says, and at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And here we see what was most extraordinary of all about the way Jesus faced death. It wasn't the physical suffering. It wasn't even the the tormenting of the chief priests and the scribes. For him, it was the experience of bearing our sin that was most painful of all. Charles Spurgeon describes it this way, the heart of Christ became like a reservoir in the midst of the mountains. All the tributary streams of iniquity and every drop of the sins of his people ran down and gathered into one vast lake, deep as hell and shoreless as eternity. All these met, as it were, in Christ's heart, and he endured them all. As this one who had never known sin, not only experienced sin, but became sin for us, he he endured a sense of forsakenness as our sin bearer, and this was the most painful experience of it all. To express that agony, there were no more appropriate words than the words of the psalmist himself, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then he cries out and dies. Verse 37, it says, and Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. This too is highly unusual. It's extraordinary. Because you see, it normally took a day or two days for a victim of crucifixion to die. It was that drawn out a process that you would suffer for the longest time and then you would finally kind of lapse into a coma and and stay in this this coma-like state for a while and then you would quietly expire. The life would sort of just drain out of you. But not Jesus, Jesus went quickly. He remained fully conscious to the very end and he doesn't go quietly but with a loud cry. Suddenly, violently, seemingly voluntarily, as if they hadn't taken his life from him, but rather as if he had given it up. This is no ordinary crucifixion. This was no ordinary victim. Jesus' death was extraordinary. It was extraordinary in the way he faced death. Secondly, his death was accompanied by extraordinary phenomena. That's the second way his his death was so extraordinary. Not only the way he experienced death, but that weird things happened, at least two of them that Mark records here. The first was the darkness that came over the land from, from noon until three in the afternoon. Look at verse 33 when it says, when the sixth hour had come, that's noon, 
There was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And some say, well, was this a solar eclipse? Maybe it was an unusually heavy overcast, or maybe it was what's called a black Scirocco, where, where sand is kicked up as winds come in off the desert, and, and there's so much sand in the air that it blocks out the sun. Mark doesn't go into any attempt to explain what caused it, except to say it was no coincidence. Whatever caused it, it was meant to happen at that very time because it had meaning. To people of that time, this kind of darkness would have been ominous. I mean, it would be ominous to us, wouldn't it? I mean, if it suddenly became dark in the middle of the day, we'd say, wow, what's going on, right? Darkness like this was associated with times of mourning. Dark skies were taken to announce the death of kings and nations. The Jews were celebrating Passover at this time, and and so for darkness to happen at Passover would be reminiscent of the ten plagues, right? And the plague of darkness that came over Egypt as a sign of God's judgment. They might be left to wonder, is God judging us for what's going on here? The darkness in the middle of the day was also associated in the prophets with the arrival of the great and terrible day of the Lord. Look at Amos chapter 8 and how he described it. Beginning in verse 9, Amos wrote, In that day, declares the sovereign Lord, this is hundreds of years before the crucifixion of Jesus, in that day, declares the sovereign Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon. Huh. It's, It's noon and it got dark all of a sudden. You'd think that someone would have said, hey, remember Amos chapter 8, verse 9? What do you think? I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your religious feasts into mourning. Huh, they might have said. We're in the middle of Passover here. I will turn your religious feasts into mourning? I will make all of you wear sackcloth and shave your heads I will make that time like mourning for an only son. Remember what Jesus said to Nicodemus in John 3? For God so loved the world, he gave his what? His one and only son. I will make that time like mourning for an only son and the end of it like a bitter day. The darkness goes along with what Jesus experiences as he hangs on the cross. God's judgment of the bearer of our sin. It makes visible what Jesus declares here. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And as this extraordinary man's, man hangs there dying in such an extraordinary way, the darkness magnifies the hugely significant moment this is. And then comes phenomenon number two. The curtain of the temple is torn in two from top to bottom. That's what it says in verse 39. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. That didn't happen every day. And it's not just that the curtain was somehow torn. It was that it was torn in two from top to bottom as if by the hand of God himself. While the custodians of the temple are off crucifying God's son, God the Father is doing some remodeling of the temple. Now this this curtain was a thick tapestry. And it divided the holy place, the front two-thirds of the temple, from the holy of holies, the back third of the temple. And it was that back third of the temple that was said to be the place that was so sacred that only the high priest could go in there once a year to atone for the sins of, of the people. It was the place where God was said to dwell in the midst 
of his people. And, and, and here it is, the, the veil of the temple being torn in two from top to bottom. Some early Christians took this tearing of the curtain in the temple as a sign of, of the coming judgment of the temple, which Jesus himself had predicted back in chapter 13, the judgment that would happen in 70 AD when the Romans destroyed the temple. The writer of Hebrews took it that God was saying the significance, uh, uh, was saying that the sacrifice of Jesus had other significance, that it, that it signified how God had opened up a way for us all to go directly into the presence of God with our sins forgiven. Remember what Hebrews 10, verses 19 and 20 say? Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place, that's the holy of holies, by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body. God has made a new way for us to have fellowship with him, direct relationship with him through the blood of Jesus Christ. Now imagine what it would have been like to be a priest working in the temple that day. You know, you're already kind of creeped out because it's dark outside, and what's that about? But you've got your job to do, and so you're working in the holy place in front of that great curtain that separates you from the holy of holies, and you're making sure that there's plenty of oil in the lamps, that the lamps are, are being kept lit, and you're making sure that there's plenty of incense on the altar of incense, symbolizing the prayers of the people going up before God. And suddenly you hear this, this loud kind of ripping sound, and you instinctively cover your head with your arms, thinking that the roof is falling in. And when the noise stops, you look up to see that that great curtain has been torn in two from top to bottom and you suddenly find yourself looking into the holy of holies and you're scared you run out of that place thinking that you might be struck dead any moment And, and you run outside as the darkness begins to lift and you later discover that at the very moment when the temple curtain was torn in two from top to bottom Jesus was breathing his last at Golgotha Do you think it's any wonder that Acts chapter 6 verse 7 tells us that in the early days in the church in Jerusalem, a great number of priests came to faith in Christ? His death was extraordinary in so many ways. He faced death in an extraordinary way. His death was accompanied by extraordinary phenomena. And thirdly and finally, his death made an extraordinary impact. His death made an extraordinary impact on some highly unlikely people beginning with Joseph of Arimathea, for one. We read his story in verse 43 where it says, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council. So he's a member of the Sanhedrin. He's a member of the the very council that earlier that day had condemned Jesus to death. Not that Joseph necessarily had gone along with that verdict, but he was part of that council. It says, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. This is highly unusual. It's extraordinary that a prominent member of the Sanhedrin would go ask for the body of a crucified Jew like this. His request amounts to an open confession of loyalty to Jesus he could be committing career suicide here. This, this would mean an instant loss of credibility with the Sanhedrin. He may have been highly respected up to this point, but he won't be respected anymore. If he knew what was good for him, he'd steer clear of this whole nasty business 
To be a sympathizer of one condemned for high treason could earn the same fate for him. Now, Jewish law required a proper burial for all bodies before sundown, even executed criminals, and that was normally done by the family. But Mary appears to be too distraught. The brothers are nowhere to be found, and Jesus' disciples are all afraid and in hiding. So Joseph lovingly does what no one else can do. This is extraordinary. Mark is giving his readers in Rome who themselves are are tempted to be closet Christians, the example of Joseph, who refused to stay a secret disciple and boldly identified himself with Jesus. Just as extraordinary as Pilate's response. I mean, what a day he'd had, right? He tried to to find a way to set Jesus free. On four different occasions, he had declared Jesus innocent and said he should go free. But then he finally caved in to the demands of the mob. It just wasn't politically expedient to spend any of his capital trying to save this man's life. So he handed Jesus over to be beaten and crucified. It was left to his own soldiers to carry that out. It was his men who had, who had dressed Jesus in that robe and put the crown of thorns on his head, who had beat Jesus within an inch of his life. And then it was, it was his men who had supervised that, that procession out to Golgotha and nailed him to the cross. His soldiers had carried all that out. I imagine that as it grew dark in the middle of the day, it must have had an impact on Pilate, don't you think? To cause him to wonder what was going on. What had we done here? And now comes Joseph asking for the body already? Remember I said it would normally take two to three days for a a crucified person to die? And, And here Joseph a member of the council, was already asking for the body of this guy? Look at verse 44 where it says, Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. Now, it was really unusual for a Roman to release the body of one executed for high treason really unusual, extraordinary, if you will, for him to release the body to a non-relative. But perhaps at the end of this long, confusing day, Pilate determined that to grant this one request was the least he could do. He knew Jesus was innocent. If it hadn't been, it just hadn't been expedient for him to fight for Jesus' life, but at least he could ensure that Jesus would receive a decent burial. Pilate was a hard-nosed, no-nonsense Roman bureaucrat, but on some level, this whole nasty episode seems to have made an impact on him. So much so that there's an ancient tradition that says that when Pilate was relieved of his duties in Judea, he retired to Switzerland. Not a bad place to retire, I guess. But there he spent the rest of his days compulsively washing his hands, trying to get the blood of Jesus off of them. And then there's the centurion. You know, Jesus' death had an extraordinary impact on some highly unlikely people, Joseph, Pilate himself, and, and then the centurion. The centurion had overseen the whole miserable business, had supervised that detail that had dragged Jesus through the street. It might have been the centurion himself who had pulled Simon of Cyrene out of the crowd to carry Jesus' cross for him. 
He, he had seen many people suffer and die by crucifixion, but he had never seen one suffer and die with such seeming purpose. He, he had stood close enough to, to hear Jesus say some extraordinary things, wise and loving things. He'd never heard from a, a cross before. He watched how Jesus remained seemingly so in command of the situation. He too must have wondered about the darkness in the middle of the day. What did it portend? What bad thing was, was happening here? In every other example, every other instance of crucifixion he'd overseen, the life of the crucified one had kind of drained away slowly. But this one was different. It was as if he chose the moment of his departure. Again, verse 37, and Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. Can you imagine that? I mean, this is the, the climax of Mark's confession of Jesus' identity. The first voice to confess him as the Son of God was the voice at Jesus' baptism in Mark chapter 1. This is my beloved Son. It was in, Acts chapter, or in, in, in Mark chapter 8 that the disciples for the first time finally figured it out. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. It was in chapter 14 that Jesus finally came out in public and let it be said. Uh, to the people who he knew would use it against him to charge him with blasphemy and take his life when they asked him, tell us plainly, are, are you the Christ, the Son of God? And he said, I am. And now here is the vindication that even a battle-hardened Roman centurion could see plainly what the leaders of Israel refused to see. Truly, this man was the Son of God. The centurion never knew Jesus in life. He only knew him in death. But the way he died was so extraordinary, it led him to this conclusion. He had to be the Son of God. Who else could this be? Now try to grasp how significant this is. <clears throat> because a Roman soldier was sworn to allegiance to Caesar. You were supposed to say, Caesar is the Son of God. Caesar is Lord. It's extraordinary that he would bestow such a title on a crucified Jew. This is the very thing for which Mark's readers were beginning to pay with their lives back in Rome. They were refusing to say Caesar is Lord. They would insist, no, Jesus is Lord. And, and they may have lived in fear that a detail of soldiers led by a centurion just like this one might one day come to their door and take them off to be crucified because they refused to say Caesar is Lord. Yet here is this centurion in Mark's gospel. This gives them courage to, to face whatever might be coming to them, to know that that for which they might be called upon to give their lives was true, so true in fact that even the centurion who had watched Jesus die there could see something extraordinary about him. Truly, this man was the Son of God. Everything about his life pointed to his identity, but so did everything about his death. The extraordinary way he faced death, the extraordinary phenomena that accompanied his death, the extraordinary impact his death had on very unlikely people. And what does it all led up to? 
Mark is clearly showing us the Son of God gave his life for us. That one who was on the cross could be none other than the the Son of God himself. The one who died on that cross, suffering for your sin and mine, was none other than God's own precious Son. It took a life that precious, a sacrifice that great, to pay for the debt of our sin. What made the death of Jesus most extraordinary of all was his willingness to take our place. He gave his life of infinite worth to ransom rebels and sinners from the power and penalty of sin. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross that we might come alive to God. Jesus' death was extraordinary in most every way. There will never be another death as extraordinary and impactful as that one. There will never be a death so important to us for our salvation. On rare occasions, we get a glimpse in real life of how extraordinary that death was. A man by the name of Nikolai Berdyev, who was a Marxist and an atheist, became a follower of Christ, became a Christian, and he says it wasn't because of the church, it wasn't because of history, it wasn't because of theology. He said it was because of a simple woman known only to him as Mother Maria, a Christian he encountered in the concentration camp in Germany where, where Jews were being herded together to go off to, to the gas chamber. And he said he watched as an officer was getting together the requisite number of people to, to go into the gas chamber. And he came upon a, a woman who had a little baby in her arms, and the soldier was demanding that the woman give her baby up and, and come with the group that was headed to the gas chamber. And when Mother Maria perceived that the soldier wasn't really interested in this mother in particular, only in having the correct number of people to go into the gas chamber, she ran up, pushed the woman aside, and took her place, and willingly went to her death. Bertie have watched all that, watched this this Christ follower, this follower of Jesus, willingly give her life as a substitute for another woman. And it finally clicked for him. And he realized, that's what Jesus did for me. That's what Jesus did for me. He gave his life of infinite worth in exchange for me. Paid for my sin. Paid for yours. He paid for yours. That Jesus, God's eternal Son, gave his life for us is extraordinary, don't you think? My hope is that today we've come better to understand it, to better appreciate it, and to utterly depend upon it. Because in his death and resurrection is our salvation. Let's bow in prayer. If you're already a follower of Jesus, you already have trusted in him as your Savior and Lord. You know, this is an old, old story, but I I pray that 
today as we've looked into God's word, you've come away with a fresh appreciation of what Jesus did for you on the cross. And this would be a good time for you to give thanks and to renew your, your appreciation of him. But I'd like to especially address the person who might be here today who's saying, you know what, this is all hitting me in a, in a different way than it ever has before. I'm hearing it with different ears and I'm beginning to understand it and appreciate it in a way I, I never did before. To think of the extraordinary thing Jesus did when he gave his life on the cross and then to realize he did all that for me. Yeah, he did all that for you. He gave his life of infinite worth to pay for your sin and mine. And it's only because of what he did that we can be forgiven our sin. But it doesn't happen automatically. It only happens as we put our faith and trust in Jesus to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. What we can't do for ourselves is earn our way into God's favor, to, to prove ourselves to God that we're such good people. Now the Bible says we've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. That's why he sent Jesus, to take care of our sin problem that we couldn't take care of our, for ourselves. And the way that we receive forgiveness of sin, the way we're we're brought into a new relationship with God is by putting our faith and trust in Jesus to be our Savior and Lord, to be our rescuer from sin and our leader for life. And you might be sitting there saying, you know, I, I've always known about Jesus, but I, I can't remember a time when I've personally kind of said, yes, Lord Jesus, come into my life. I trust in you to forgive my sin and and." and to give me new life with God. Well, this can be that day. My prayer is that it would be that day for you. And it's a ma mainly a matter of, of expressing to God your desire to put your full faith and trust in Jesus and Jesus alone as your Savior and Lord. To pray something like, God have mercy on me, a sinner. I acknowledge that like everyone else, I have done things and said things and thought things that are displeasing to you. And I've done my best to, to, to make up for those things, but I know that it's not sufficient. I deserve your judgment like everyone else. But I thank you for sending Jesus to pay the ransom of my sin, to pay the debt so that I can be set free. Lord Jesus, Come into my life and wash me clean. Come into my life and, and, and give me a new start. Help me to, to live a life that's pleasing to you and to the Heavenly Father. If that's the earnest prayer of your heart today and you're praying a prayer like that for the first time, would you slip your hand up so I can see it? I'd like to be able to pray for you. Right where you are, just slip your hand up. Okay, I see that hand. Anybody else? Thank you. Anyone else? For those of you who've raised your hands today, I'd, I'd like to ask you to do something before you leave. Out in the, the foyer, as you move toward the parking lot, you're going to see on the right-hand side a great big green banner that says yes on it. 
And I'd like you to, to stop off and see Paul. He's dressed in a dark blue shirt. He'll be right next to the banner. And just say, I said yes. And, and Paul will put in your hands a little booklet that we, we like to give out. Uh, it's called Saying Yes to a Relationship with Jesus. We want to have that in your hands before you leave. Uh, it helps you kind of understand what, what this is all about and how to take next steps in your walk with Christ. Lord, thank you for these who've raised their hands today. We're grateful for your powerful saving work that even right now, down to this very day, you're, you're washing people clean. You're, you're giving them a new start. You're forgiving our sins. You're, you're empowering us to live new lives in you. And Lord, I am just grateful for all that you've done for me. I'm grateful for all you've done for my brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm grateful for those who just today become followers of Jesus. Lord, watch over them, keep them in your care, assure them of your forgiveness, and, and teach them how to walk with Jesus every day, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, we often say here at Bayside, uh, when people indicate that they put their faith in Christ, when they said yes to Jesus, um, there's a place in the Bible where it says the angels in heaven rejoice when, when a single sinner repents, and there's a party going on in heaven today right now in your honor. Let's stand together and sing a closing song.